Welcome to Australia's Next Steps, an ASB podcast aiming to look beyond COVID-19 and it asks what's next for Australia, brought to you by Oracle. I'm your host, Michael Shoebridge. In this short series, we speak with guests from ASPE, academia and industry to look at the big questions and opportunities for Australia's future. In episode one, we discuss the future of national security for Australia, and we take a look at the outlook for our region. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. I'm Michael Shoebridge, the Director of Defence Strategy and National Security at ASPE, and uh, today I'm joined by my boss, uh, ASPE's Executive Director, Peter Jennings, and one of my colleagues, Dr. Huang Latu. We're talking about how COVID-19 is changing national security, who are likely to be the winners and losers out of some of the changes we can see, and what kind of opportunities are there for Australia. So, uh, Peter, I know you've been thinking about the way our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been approaching the crisis and managing it and bringing a national security lens to it. What's your early thought about about how that's being done? Well, thanks, Michael. Um, this is really the third big crisis that Scott Morrison has managed um, in his time as a senior minister and prime minister. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, firstly, the Stop the Boats campaign, which uh, he was responsible for uh, as immigration minister several years ago, the bushfires um, of late last year and early this year, and of course now coronavirus. And there's a pattern in how Morrison has approached these things. He's, he's cast each as being a national security challenge. And um, I think one reason why he's doing that is because he's using the model of how the National Security Committee of Cabinet operates. Um, this is a, a subcommittee of the full cabinet. It brings in uh, specialist advisors, uh, the military, intelligence, police, in this case, of course, the um, health advisors of the states and territories. And it can, it's designed to operate in a crisis mode by meeting very regularly, making um, serial decisions, as it were, uh, regularly receiving briefs. I, I think Morrison is quite now comfortable with this style of government. And for him, I think he finds it to be a more responsive way to operate than relying on the wider bureaucracy, of which he tends not to have a particularly high regard. Um, he certainly made that point not long after the election campaign and saying to the public service, well, you guys just do the implementing, I'll do the thinking for you. Uh, but he does tend to turn to the national security agencies when he's looking for quick action. So I think he's carried that style of governance into the management of the coronavirus crisis. And you'd have to say that so far, I think the government is doing as good a job as any government around the world uh, in terms of managing the virus. In fact, um, I, I'd go further than that and say that this creation of a national cabinet bringing in the premiers and territory chief ministers has really been something of uh, political innovation. And I hope that after the crisis, they keep it and, and they can actually apply this in a, in a creative way to some other very big policy challenges that the country faces. So that's that's our Prime Minister's style of governing to really bring that national security decision-making process uh, to bear on this crisis. What's it look like uh, in our near region, uh, Huang? 
Uh, how do you how do you look at say a country like the Philippines and Duterte in this crisis? Yeah, in our near region, Southeast Asia, uh, as you know, is a very diverse region which has very different political systems, and uh, the pandemic so far has affected them quite differently. We don't know the entire picture as yet. We might be seeing only the tip of the iceberg with the numbers uh, appearing in Indonesia and elsewhere. But so far, um, the first wave, so to speak, the first uh, countries that have been hit, uh, Singapore, Vietnam and Thailand, are doing relatively good on this side. Singapore has shown that it has been very well prepared in terms of investment in public health, in terms of governance, and also um, the high level of trust to the political leaders and therefore so-called civic duty, the sense of civic duty. And their model of collective leadership looks like it's working very well, as is that close connection between government and business. That's right. And Vietnam is also doing very well in that regard. Uh, so far, there's no death uh, recorded and the, they uh, have been successful in keeping the uh, numbers very low. It's quite a challenge for a country of 90-some million people. It's not like small like Singapore. And I think this, what this crisis will really unfold is that um, if there's anywhere that the governance is not working or any part of governance, it will really expose it. Um, so, and for example... That, that looks like um, the Philippines to me. Well, not, and I, I know Peter's got some thoughts about that too, but let's let's look at Duterte and his model and how that works in a crisis like this one. Yeah, so uh, in in terms of Southeast Asia, the three countries that are most worried are in this moment is Indonesia, Philippines, and Myanmar. Um, we've got um, Philippines, which has uh, four out of ten most densely populated cities. Uh, so social distancing is not going to be easy. Uh, it's not going to work in the way it works, for example, in our uh, in our country. Uh, but yeah, Philippines. I mean, it's it's an opportunity for any kind of trends and tendencies that have been there before. For example, Duterte has a very public face and handling the crisis quite uh, frontally. So he's been using very much the rhetoric he's been using uh, during the drug war, uh, very uncompromising, even ruthless at some point um, with uh, giving orders such as, you know, shoot them if they don't obey, uh, things like that. That makes us worry a little bit about the, the human rights uh, issues there. That's very different from the style of leadership that uh, President Jokowi in Indonesia is showing, who is taking a little bit backseat uh, leadership and even is criticized for uh, doing too little uh, too late um, in this regard. Uh, I think it's going to be really challenging for, for him who has come to this uh, first and second term on the promises of creation of new jobs, of economic growth, um, and infrastructure building. All of that uh, is might and likely will be um, challenged by this pandemic that will uh, likely to have big economic impact um, on Indonesia and all, all countries. Yes, yes. So now, uh, turning now to what's happening to the scope of national security with COVID-19, you know, I think that's, this actually is a story of the broadening scope of national security that had begun well before this crisis. It's not just COVID-19. There are layered challenges that are changing the conception of national security. And I'm thinking about the foreign interference agenda in Australia, which is really 
thinking seriously for the first time about how our domestic politics and debate is really part of our national security infrastructure to protect that debate from external covert and corrupting interference. Then, as we've already mentioned, the national crises of the drought and the bushfires and now the pandemic. So, Peter, although the Prime Minister is using the national security framework for decision making, doesn't this bring in a whole lot of new players across government and business uh, to now play their part in national security, whether it's the health department or uh, agribusiness or uh, energy companies? It does, Michael. Uh, I, I think this experience is going to um, overturn a, a lot of long-held assumptions in Canberra about how um, we operate in the international system. Uh, this will certainly impact on supply chains. I think it will force the government to think harder about how it maintains um, real as opposed to theoretical supplies of uh, fuels, petrols, oils, oils and lubricants, critical medical technology, um, the things that we have all struggled or we've seen the health system struggle to um, access at the moment when they needed it and, and quite possibly uh, put uh, many people in the health system into, into harm's way. So um, we're going to emerge out of this crisis with, I think, a stronger sense of what it means to have sovereign control around um, critical supply chains. And um, defence is probably going to find itself with um, more tasks on its um, dance card than it really wants to have. Any country can expect its defence force to be called in to help in, in emergency situations. But how far is it sensible to spread the capacities of what is really a small organisation, um, still about half the size of the Melbourne uh, of a Melbourne cricket ground audience? Um, you know, something that we can't forget, Michael, is when we get to the other side of the crisis, traditional state-on-state national security concerns, I think, are going to be forefront. And um, there's good reason to be really worried about that uh, because I think um, you, you can see a situation emerging where China will be attempting to advantage itself as best it can in the region. Uh, we have the United States going through a hellish experience itself with, frankly, poor leadership from the president. So what is that going to do from the point of view of um, our uh, traditional alliance relationship? And our geography is such that we are going to be surrounded by a large number of countries that are going to be infinitely worse hit than us. How will we deal with that situation? What contribution can we make to those countries or how indeed do we simply protect ourselves from the consequences of uh, a Papua New Guinea, say, or an Indonesia, which is, you know, um, uh, unfortunately most likely to have a far worse experience of uh, uh, the coronavirus than, than we will. They are issues which um, w would lead any strategist to have, um, you know, um, serious pause for thought about the need to rewrite um, that 2016 defence white paper and to put a lot more emphasis on short notice readiness of the defence force and the capacity to undertake perhaps stabilisation operations uh, in states which have become really badly affected by the virus. I, I can see a lot of knock-on effects which will get defence doing what it typically does and will put um, you know, serious stress on the organisation and on government decision-making in, in the not-too-distant future. Mm. Huang and Peter, I can hear people saying, well, gosh, 
if national security is becoming this broad, doesn't it get a bit like Rudd's deeply flawed national security statement back in 2008, which, you know, that all hazards approach, such a broad conception of national security that everything was in. And if everything is a national security issue, then it's almost meaningless in its breadth. So looking at Australia and, and our near region, even into Southeast Asia and the South Pacific, are there some clear priorities? I'm thinking about disaster response as a, as a core priority domestically and regionally. And Wong, I know you're thinking about it's not just mm-hmm. COVID-19. Uh, we're coming into the typhoon season in Southeast yes. Asia. Well, I think the human security component is the biggest uh, concern for Southeast Asia. If you look at the um, surveys, regional surveys, uh, in terms of how the citizens, they look at the security, the most concern of, uh, for them is is economic stability, human security related to either climate change like, and uh, natural disasters because they are the countries that every year experience natural disasters such as uh, typhoons, droughts and, and floods. But I think the COVID is unusual in a way that it combines everything at the same time. It, it, it's both, um, you know, their domestic responses and fragility of that uh, or inaptness to uh, to respond, but also what it does to global supply chain, as Peter mentioned, but also um, the other economies. So it's at the same time dealing with it domestically, uh, but also um, it is a slowdown for the external markets. And remember that most of Southeast Asian countries are heavily export uh, dependent, and, and if it's uh, not very healthy markets elsewhere in China, in US, Europe, uh, European Union, or Australia, then it comes. Uh, the challenge comes from the both sides, from out external and internal. And I don't think any country um, has uh, got that thought through. I mean, uh, coming into the pandemic before the COVID nineteen, most of countries were, um, were concerned, or worried about the the impact of the trade war to their economic well-being and now uh, we have uh, we have this pandemic that we don't know how long it's going to last for and what scope of damage it will do to all of economies in the world um so it, it at this moment it can go either way or, or all the way at the same time it can be humanitarian issue it could be economic um uh, security but um if it's really badly handled uh, it could also spill over into internal domestic instability and, and riots um, and even some more radical unrest in, in each of countries. And some of the countries in the region have had military rule traditions. So we can't uh, also rule out completely that if uh, the situation goes really, really bad, we, we can't rule out that some of that tendencies will reemerge again. Probably a role for Australia here working with our regional partners we're striking our own balances around civil liberties and security. You can see that with the discussion about police powers in states like New South Wales. But I think your point, Hong, about human security being the framework that, that Southeast Asia is using, well, it's also the framework that the South Pacific is using. So maybe that's a bit of an organising principle for us. I wonder, though, thinking about opportunities and, and challenges, When you look at, uh, say, the U.S. alliance and uh, partner framework internationally, um, U.S. partners and allies are a mix of both the worst affected, including the U.S. itself, and the most resilient. So I'm thinking of countries like South Korea, uh, Japan, and Taiwan. 
uh, and also uh, Australia and New Zealand as and Singapore as US partners that are probably um, towards the upper level of best practice in this pandemic. That to me seems to bring out some opportunities for new kinds of partnerships uh, between us and our our other partners. What what thoughts do you have about that, Peter? Michael, I think this is a moment when the democracies could take a conscious decision to work together more effectively. Um, and in the democracies, of course, I'm including countries such as um, Indonesia and, and Japan. What we need, I think, is a John Howard moment. I'm referring, of course, to Howard's decision to provide Indonesia with a billion dollars worth of uh, development assistance after the 2004 tsunami, which really helped to quite fundamentally change the Australia-Indonesia relationship after the East Timor crisis of um, half a decade before that. We cannot really live securely in this region if Indonesia is not a secure uh, partner of Australia. Uh, and therefore, I think um, as, as soon as our government feels confident that it's got um, the right hold on the domestic Australian situation, the next question they should be asking themselves is, right, now what can we do to assist Indonesia to get over this problem? A failure to do that would be a massive lost opportunity in the bilateral relationship, but it could also lead to a vastly worse outcome in, in Indonesia itself if we find that the government is is put under threat. Um, desperate people might actually get in boats and start moving south again. So, you know, we, there is a real opportunity here if we're imaginative enough to grasp the need for yeah. regional leadership. And isn't there a, there's a ready-to-hand framework there? There's both our security relationship, but there's also our newly um, ratified free trade agreement, the Closer Economic Partnership. So there's a real opportunity to use that framework to accelerate things that both our countries want, which is a much deeper political and economic relationship. This could be indeed, just indeed. the and, and I, I would also be casting this in terms of the Lombok Treaty, which is an agreement between Australia and Indonesia that says we have shared and common strategic interests. So again, you know, this is not going to come cheap. It will cost money and it's going to be in the context of a new world where um, we're now essentially going to be in debt as a country and as a globe for, for decades to come as a result of the need to spend to bring ourselves out of the crisis. But I think having crossed that Rubicon, those few moments of the budget being back in black, let, let's forget that. Um, uh, what we need to do is to start thinking about, I think, significantly doubling uh, our aid um, spending, uh, perhaps even thinking about doubling our defence spending, because I think the demand will, will be there. Um, but it doesn't all have to be about military equipment. It can also be about relationship building amongst the decent democracies, which I think is uh, a core lesson out of this, is that if you can't trust the autocracies to do the right thing and to be honest and open, um, let's work on building relationships with the democracies. Mm, well, on that, yeah, I think it's interesting. Sorry, Vong, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of reiterate Peter's point that there will be a lot of demand uh, from the region, obviously, depending on how well Australia come out with uh, for, with the response to the pandemic. But I've been looking at the projections of how hard uh, this COVID-19 will hit economically 
the our near region. And of course, there are different uh, metrics and different measurements. But instead of what was uh, expected by the World Bank, that by 2020s we'll lift another 35 million people from poverty. Uh, another uh, study by um, published by the Financial Times recently said that our near region um, might end up after the a pandemic uh, with another 11 or 12 million of uh, people falling below the poverty line. So our region will be in a very fragile and unstable position. Um, having said that, Australia can really build on its strength and reputation in the region, which has been the quality, quality of everything, like in terms of healthcare quality of medicine, of research, of education, all of that will be needed. CSIRO, for example, is uh, one of the early ones to start testing the vaccines and really can be one of the forerunner. So I think if anyone has doubted multilateralism, this is the moment that we revive the faith in multilateralism as well. Well, which is is a a pandemic. That's a lesson from history, I think, Huang. After both world wars, It was a high point of uh, global cooperation that got spawned from that. And I think we should have the same ambition at the end of this global crisis. I wonder, though, with the region and Australia and indeed with our US and other partners, after both the world wars, there was a post-war production collapse because those crises had really accelerated national production. But in this case, could we have the opposite? Could we have a post-COVID production increase because it's Australia and others will want to rebuild our own capacities to do more of what we need ourselves in crises. And is that an opportunity for Australia with regional partners and with our uh, existing alliance partners? So, Michael, I, I, I think that the requirement is for some creative and quite expansive policy thinking uh, in order to be able to, you know, try to grasp some opportunities from from this issue, we've clearly seen across the, the world a problem emerge that no one was really thinking about, which was global reliance on China for production of um, a large volume of uh, medical equipment and drugs. Now, I think post the virus, no country is going to feel comfortable going back to that situation. So why not, for example, look at a sort of an expanded Five Eyes relationship, which is aimed at at building the kinds of stockpiles and resilience we we need to be able to source drugs and medical equipment from other countries that can be regarded, I think, as perhaps more trustworthy suppliers. Um, You know, I, I think Australia could play a very significant part in that. But the thing to avoid in all of this is just imagining that what happens after the crisis is a return to the world that we had uh, back in December of uh, of 2019. I don't think that's going to happen. So just-in-time supply of critical gear, no longer acceptable. Complete reliance on China because of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party is no longer acceptable. Um, And so we're going to have to think harder about new policy settings. And I think that that's, you know, again, an opportunity for Australia to be creative, not only for itself, but internationally, if we're prepared to do that. By the way, I think the same thing will be true for a lot of companies as well. Uh, The the private sector has been a casualty of this um, situation as much as anybody else. 
they are going to have to rethink some very um, tested assumptions around supply chains, around uh, stockpiles, critical support, around business continuity. Um, So these are challenges which are going to be very much um, in the private sector as well as the government sector. Mm. Um, Hong, how about that uh, digital agenda? You know, for Australia, I think we're really accelerating the Prime Minister's ambition that we be a leading digital nation by 2030. I feel like the changes many businesses uh, and even government agencies are being forced to make are really accelerating that digital agenda. That was already a big part of the ASEAN agenda. Do you think that's an opportunity for Australia with our ASEAN partners to really accelerate our digital connectivity with them? Uh, it could go uh, either way, Michael. I think what the point I was trying to make earlier is that uh, we have to share experiences, like whether it's medical or uh, digital development, because th- what this crisis unfolds is like we are so interconnected that no one can afford to work in separation. And we do need sharing best practices and, back- and research um, and all the uh, all the policy recommendations that we all um, are in this together. But I uh, I think it could go both ways. So, for example, v- both in Vietnam, Singapore, um, uh, and even Indonesia to to some degree had high ambitions in terms of transforming um, their economies to to um, technically technologically enabled economies and breaking sort sort of this middle income and low uh, low skills manufacturing. What, one thing this uh, pandemic can cause is that we won't have um, the, the respective countries won't have that much of budget and and really human resources bandwidth to further this agenda in this uh, deadline and this frame time frame that they've uh, targeted. But at the same time, uh, we've, uh, for example, our work uh, format has transited into the digital and cyber sphere. So really, there will be more impulse for. Uh, for connectivity in terms of, you know, e-commerce, uh, technologically in, 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 enabled um, um, models of, of workforce. So I think there is, of course, the scope and an extra motivation to go that way. And I think um, uh, countries like Australia can really be a part of that uh, uh, regional conversation and, mm. and share experiences. And then there's a role also of the private companies. Yes, so it sounds like a clear... So, Hung, something that... Sorry, Michael, I just wanted to sort of add a kind of a second thought to uh, Hung's uh, very good comments there, which is to say, you know, we, we now face a situation in Australia where we've... Our university sector may well have lost 100,000 Chinese students for um, a good period of time. Why wouldn't our government now be thinking about right? What what would it look like if we said we will we the government will fund a hundred thousand places for Southeast Asian students to study at Australian universities? Maybe starting mm-hmm. remotely, but then actually physically coming here when we've uh, when we're able to open up to um, international visitors again. You know, it, yeah. grow uh, obviously grow a new market and grow that. the human capital uh, that the region exactly needs. exactly. Yeah. I yes, mean, that's people, a very good people's idea. eyes would roll at the thought of the cost of doing that. But think of the, the return on that investment, if you like, from having 100,000 Southeast Asians educated at Australian universities. I mean, we know from experience that that's been invaluable to how Australia has managed relations with um, Southeast Asian countries in the past. 
So again, I, I sort of repeat the call for big thinking and, and new ideas yeah. that can help bring us out of this situation. And and also perhaps government partnerships with big tech that can sponsor, for example, computers to um, the schools in in the in the regions. Like not all all schools have been able to transform uh, into online learning, but yeah, there's a big scope for. Uh, private-public uh, uh, partnerships in that. With a lot of lessons out of our education system, which I think is a standout success in their rapid shift to online learning from primary right through universities. Well, look, this is a fascinating discussion. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to talk about, a lot more to think about, and a lot of uncertainty. But in that, there are some real opportunities about closer partnerships, about co-production with trusted partners, as opposed to the outsourced risk to the vulnerable global system concentrated in China. Real focus on Indonesia now and a need for imagination. So uh, to me, I'd like to thank you both for the discussion, but a clear lesson for me is plan beyond the current crisis. Uh, governments need to do that. Businesses need to do that. And also look for the opportunities in this, opportunities we can already see and ones that we can generate into the future once the peak of this crisis has ended and we're looking at uh, an accelerated security landscape with um, plenty of surprise but plenty of opportunity as well. So thank you both for your uh, insights and discussion. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Hong. Thank you. That brings us to the close of our first episode of Australia's Next Steps. Thanks to Peter and Hong for your time and insight and sharing your thoughts with me in this episode. The topic we've discussed today, the future of national security, is much larger than the time we had on this episode. If you'd like to continue the discussion, please engage with ASPE on Twitter at ASPE underscore org, and we can hear your take on the topic. We'll return shortly with our next episode, Australia's Next Steps, the Future of Work in Australia. Until then, stay well, stay safe. Thank you.